start by telling you a story. This happened 35 years ago, but I can still remember it. I went to a concert. Ontario Place has an amphitheater. It's pretty big. And uh, I went to hear these guys. I don't know if you ever heard of them before, the Nylons. It's an a cappella group. I was a big fan. Um, but uh, it, it was a summer evening, and we were, this whole crowd was sitting around this amphitheater waiting for the concert to start. And off in the distance, a few people stood up and they chanted something. I couldn't make out what, they, what it was. Uh, and then they sat down and I, I noticed it, maybe 10 people. And then just a few seconds later, they stood up and they chanted the same thing again. Only this time there was just a few more people. And then they sat down. Then they stood up again, only this time it was even more people. And, and finally now I could just make out what they were saying. And what they were saying was, there ain't no flies on us. There ain't no flies on us. There may be flies on some of you guys, but there ain't no flies on us. And they sat down and some of the people across the stadium from them must have heard it because a scattering of people stood up and yelled the same thing back at them. Well, that got even more people on this side standing up and they chanted, there ain't no flies on us, back. And it went back and forth and every time more and more and more people participated till within a few minutes, the whole stadium was, was divided down the middle and one side would yell, there ain't no flies on us and they would sit down and the other side would jump up and say the same thing. And it was just fun. We were all laughing. Everybody was participating. There was this camaraderie, this unity that it, it just, I mean, 35 years later, I can still picture it. I can still remember it. And it got me thinking about this psalm that we're looking at today, the Psalm 133, and thinking about the people of Israel, because this psalm is, is called one of the songs of ascent. So the people of Israel, people that lived around the Galilee area, they would sing these songs of ascent as they headed up to Jerusalem for some feast or another. And I can imagine them as they walk along, united in purpose to get to Jerusalem, and united as they sing these songs together and some of these songs are laments it's a it's a long journey it's a difficult journey there's fears there's concerns but there's some of these songs that are are like this one a, a song of, of unity and I can well imagine this feeling of camaraderie this feeling of unity as they journey together to go up to Jerusalem for the feast so David wrote this psalm and it begins how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity and we can understand that line. We get that. But David then, he wants to give us a word picture. He wants to give us an idea of just how good, how pleasant it is when people live together in unity. But unfortunately, we kind of lose the word picture. What does this mean for us? And so we, Aaron, oil, beard, What's that mean? And then there's this whole thing about dew on Hermon. Where's Hermon? What's Hermon? Uh, dew falling on Zion. I, I don't know about you, but for me, I read the first line. I get that part, but the rest gets a little bit more confusing. So let's piece this together for just a minute to get a full image of what David is trying to convey about unity. So if you do a Google search, 
Aaron anointing, you come up with Leviticus 8, and uh, Leviticus 8 says uh, this, Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, and so consecrated them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So the setting here is that the people of Israel uh, have been rescued from um, uh, Egypt. They've emerged out of Egypt as, as a nation. Uh, they worship God. They're, they have a name for God, Yahweh, but they, they don't have really a religion yet. And as they journey around the, the, the wilderness, God gives them all the regulations. He tells them how to build the tabernacle and gives them all kinds of rules and stuff. And here in Leviticus 8, here is where they actually put those laws into action. This is the very first time a high priest is getting anointed. This is where the people of Israel actually create all the pieces of their newfound religion. And, and so the whole assembly, all of Israel, is gathered around this freshly built tabernacle and and the, Aaron has these freshly made robes that they've been instructed to make and now Aaron is going to be anointed as as the very first chief priest high priest for 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 the people of Israel but when you anoint with oil uh, you don't put just a couple of drops on the head. You put, you put a bunch of oil on and, and the oil flows down over the head, onto the beard and onto the collar. And there's this, there's this feeling of, of oil just pouring forward. And, and I think the image here is, is, is the oil, it, it's meant to anoint the head, but there's more. And so there's this abundance, this flow. And, and I know David was anointed with oil, so he knows what this feels like. And I, I imagine he, he imagines uh, Aaron's anointing and all the people there, that unity and this blessing, this oil just pouring forward. It runs not just on the head, but onto the beard, onto the collar, because the blessing of unity isn't just that, oh, we're getting along. The blessing of unity isn't just, oh, we're not having fights. The blessing of unity flows so much more. God's blessing is there. The God's pleasure at His people being united is, is so much more than just we're not fighting. There's, there's this blessing, this anointing, this healing that comes from that. But David's not finished. He's, he, he wants another picture for us. And so, um, uh, sorry, there, there's the slide. There's, there's uh, the, the next word picture, though, is, is this one from Mount Hermon. So Mount Hermon, he references uh, and says as, as if the dew from Mount Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Hermon is, is 9,200 feet high, and it gets a lot of water, uh, a lot of rainfall and snow. There's snow on it for, for half the year. Um, the cloud cover is, is on there a lot, and so there's a lot of dew. As a matter of fact, there's so much moisture that falls on Hermon that it is the primary source for the Jordan River. The, the water flows down the slopes of of Mount Hermon and, and, and into the, the Jordan River. And I can imagine the people of Galilee, so Mount Hermon is, is to the north of, of Galilee. It's probably a hundred miles from Jerusalem. Uh, but I, from Galilee, you can see it. And I can imagine that if you're in Galilee and you look up, you, you see that snow-capped mountain. And then, I don't know about you, on a hot day in the lower mainland, I like looking up at, at Mount Baker and seeing the snow and just imagining being able to access and be in that snow and cool off. I can imagine the people in Galilee would sometimes look at Herman and just wish that moisture were falling right on them. 
But uh, uh, so, so Mount Hermon is, is there. Uh, Mount Zion is this really this little hill that's right by Jerusalem. And um, it would be dry and it would be dusty. And, and David says, imagine, just imagine for a second, if all that dewfall, the snowfall, if all that that was on Mount Hermon actually fell on Mount Zion. Imagine the blessing. Imagine the abundant growth that would happen. Imagine. And, and David says, that's what it's like when God's people are united. That's what the blessing is. There's this, this abundance of, 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 of blessing, this abundant flow that comes as God's people are united. Now, is, is that a consistent message in the rest of the Bible? Is, is this just one psalm that we say, oh, isn't that interesting? No, there's, there's, there's a more broader message here in the Bible about unity. I, I draw your attention to John 17 because this is where Jesus is praying for his disciples uh, before he's, he's going to be crucified. And then Jesus starts praying for us, for, for the church. And, and I want you to hear Jesus' prayer for the church. He says this, my prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that you, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then... The world will know that you sent me and have loved me, have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus is saying that the unity of the church is what is going to convince people around us of the authenticity of, of his message. That the, it's, it's the unity of the believers that is this big uh, evangelistic tool, if you will. And it's not just Jesus, although that's a really powerful statement. Notice what Paul says in, in Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So there's, there's this emphasis on unity, this emphasis on us uh, loving one another and being united. But what, what causes disunity? Why do we not achieve that? Uh, James 4, verse 1 and 2, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Uh, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. James is saying what causes disunity is, is us. We have our desires. We have, we stop thinking about the group. We stop thinking about others and focus on what we want and we lose unity. Paul says in Romans, and this is the very end of Romans, he's drawing his whole book to a conclusion. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord 
Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. He's saying, watch out for these people that cause divisions. And they're doing it. Uh, uh, they're, they're creating these divisions for their own appetites, for, for, for whatever it's seeking for themselves. We need to be aware of that. And so I think that when I think about unity in the church, I think that often we have this, this, this balance and, and we're worried about unity, but we're also worried about purity. We're saying, oh yeah, unity is good, but we also have to have the right theology. We have to make sure that we're teaching the right things. And I think when we look at this balance and we look at the history of the church, where is the balance gone? So often, we see unity as a nice to have as long as we're all exactly on the same page. I think the Bible reflects that unity is, is a, a far bigger priority. Um, purity is important. We have to be teaching the right things. Um, but what are those essential core ingredients that, that are, are, are critical? And what are the pieces that are the disputable matters that we just, we, we love each other through and that we are united through? Um, you know, I don't think we can debate about the identity of Jesus as, as the Son of, of, of God, that He came to die for us, that, that God created all things, that God is eternal and, and all-powerful, that God and, and, and the Son are, are one, that they sent the Holy Spirit uh, to, to lead and, and, and um, teach the, the, the church. I think all those things are, are, are super important, but how many times do we start arguing and debating about other things? And in my own lifetime, I've seen Christians debate such ridiculous things. I remember when I was a kid, it was a big debate whether pastors should have beards or not, or whether that was bad. My mom tells the story, and it still shocks me. Um, she grew up in, in uh, Holland uh, during World War II. Nazi uh, uh, occupied Holland. And during the midst of World War II and, and, and these dark, dark days, the Reformed Church in Holland split over the issue about whether babies, before they're baptized, if they died, did they go to heaven or not? This, this caused a split in the church. Can you imagine? There's 45,000 different denominations in the world. We're obviously not doing the unity piece too well. My encouragement today is to, to notice the emphasis that God puts on unity, how much of a blessing unity is in the church. And, we, we all have our little things and we get our backs up and we say, no, this is important. And, and I just want to ask, is it, is it that important that we destroy unity over? If we look at what God teaches, is, is unity a lot more important than sometimes we put it out there? I, I just want to end my message today just with a, a prayer for unity. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We, we see the blessing of unity. Thank you for this psalm from David telling us, reminding us of, of the beauty, the blessing, uh, the abundance of blessing, uh, of, of unity. We just pray for that for our church. We pray for the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into what is really critical and, and give us grace to love one another, even as we maybe disagree on some of the more disputable matters. We just pray for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.